0: Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GerdHelp.
1: The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDhelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our TIFF Talk this evening. My name is Lynn McFadden. I'm with Endogastric Solutions. And here with, the, with me this evening for tonight's segment is my colleague, Wendy Prophet, and our guest physician speaker, Dr. Ardash Thacker. Hi, everyone. I wanted to get started by taking a minute to just briefly introduce Dr. Thacker and give you a little bit of, of his background. Dr. Thacker is a board-certified gastroenterologist advanced endoscopist and assistant professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He has a particular interest in bariatric and metabolic endoscopy as well as other minimally invasive endoscopic procedures. Dr. Thacker serves on the National Committee for the American Gastroenterological Association Center for GI Innovation and Technology. And he's also the co-chair of their educational program on innovations in duodenoscopes. He completed his undergraduate training in chemical engineering at UCLA before attending medical school at New York Medical College. And Dr. Thacker's internal medicine residence training was done at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School in Boston, followed by his gastroenterology and advanced endoscopy fellowship training at UCLA. Thank you very much for being here with us this evening, Dr. Thacker, and welcome. Absolutely.
2: It's, uh, I'm I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to uh, to chatting about reflux and, and the treatment options.
1: Wonderful. Well, we're so happy to have you here with us tonight. To kick things off, let's talk a little bit about GERD and exactly what is that?
2: Yeah, so thanks for starting with that question, because I think it's, it's an important one. And um, I think probably as many patients know that there's a spectrum of diseases that really we call the same thing as GERD. You know, GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disorder. But um, the way I like to think about it is not just one condition, it's really uh, different flavors of GERD that there could be, one way to look at it. So for example, one patient might say that their GERD is mostly heartburn and they get, you know, maybe either after they eat or at nighttime or they wake up in the morning they get burning sensation under their chest. And that's kind of the classic thing that we think about when when we think about acid reflux, heartburn. But the other major flavor of GERD is regurgitation, where it's actually not just pain, but it's actual food or fluid coming out of the stomach into the chest and causing symptoms. And sometimes it comes all the way up into the throat. And so those two are classically what we consider the, the typical symptoms of GERD or acid reflux. It's either burning under, the, under kind of the sternum or regurgitation. But then there's also a set of other conditions um, that what we call kind of the atypical or extra GI uh, manifestations of GERD. So these would be things like sore throat or LPR or aspiration. And people get microaspiration where food or liquid or saliva goes into their lungs, and they can get inflammation in the lungs. They could have a chronic cough, asthma-type symptoms. Um, so basically, those those other things that are not immediately related to the esophagus or the sensation of stuff coming up. And so, you know, the first thing that I do when I have a patient is try to figure out what flavor of GERD do they have? What am I working with? Is it that I'm working with substernal burning, the burning under the sternum or the breastbone, or is it more of a regurgitation? Um, And then I try to get a sense of their history. When does this happen? Is this only after you eat? Is it only when you're lying down? Is it that, okay, when you change position, you're actually getting stuff coming all the way up into the throat or the esophagus? Um, And all of these things are kind of part of the history and really just goes to show there's a spectrum of diseases. Not every patient with GERD is the same. But the other thing that I'm thinking about when they're describing their symptoms to me is what may be going on um, in in their body, in their esophagus. What what is the mechanism for their GERD? But, you know, GERD is not one condition. It's really a set of symptoms that we have kind of lumped together to call it. But every patient's different. It's really an individual uh, disorder.
1: Thank you so much for describing it like that. I love that, the flavors of GERD. I mean, everyone is different. And you know, what someone else might be exhibiting symptomatically might not be what you're exhibiting. Yeah. So along those lines and um, knowing that there is this spectrum, how it, does somebody know if they have GERD or how is it diagnosed?
2: Sure. So, you know, GERD is very common and there's a reason that, you know, acid blocking medications are so popular. There's, there's you know, it's very, very, very common, probably the most common gastrointestinal disorder. So um, it doesn't make sense to do invasive testing or invasive procedures on most people, because most patients will have what we call uncomplicated GERD, which is really those two symptoms I described, burning or a little bit of regurgitation. Um, If it's bothersome enough, that's when we call it the disorder, which is the D in gastroesophageal reflux disorder or disease. Um, And really the first thing that we do is take a good history and then often, unless you have any what we call alarm systems, uh, symptoms or red flags, things that make us think, oh, there's something dangerous going on. But if you have fairly typical symptoms and no high-risk family history of any complications related to acid reflux, pretty much run-of-the-mill heartburn or run-of-the-mill mild regurgitation, then really the, the diagnostic testing is that alone. It's the history. And what we'll often do is start a medication like an acid blocker or a proton pump inhibitor, something like omeprazole or pantoprazole or or one of its cousins, and say, okay, let's try this for a set period of time, maybe maybe two weeks, maybe four weeks, and we see if the symptoms get better. And if that's the case, if, if you have symptoms and you take this medication and you could reliably see, okay, yeah, after I started the medication a few days later, my symptoms went away, that that essentially is to a very high degree of accuracy, clinches the diagnosis of GERD. And at that point, we kind of talk about, okay, what dose should you be on? How long should you stay on it? Should you try to come off? Is it that you just take it during certain periods, et cetera? Um, but, you know, really, you don't need to do a lot of invasive testing for a run-of-the-mill reflux.
1: Very good. So, um- in your practice, you know, where, where, where you are practicing with your colleagues, you're really a destination center, for, for lack of a better word. You probably see patients from yeah. all over. What would you say your team's approach is to uh, working with these reflux patients? And and uh, what does that mean to patients uh, when you describe your collaborative approach? to
2: Yeah, care? well, so, you know, oftentimes the patients that I see are patients who that that first line kind of workup and treatment didn't work right then it's essentially uh, if, if that's the case people, everyone would be happy and you wouldn't need uh you know endoscopists like me to do do more uh kind of higher level of treatments and so you know the first thing that i do is i kind of so for example we have an esophageal center and they'll get referred to uh an esophageal specialist who can do a variety of of, of diagnostics and um, typically if someone let's say there's someone who's either interested in a in an anti-reflux procedure because they don't want to take medications anymore or someone who uh, the, the first line treatment that I just mentioned is not working, you know, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about why that might be. But then it's OK, let's, let's get some more information. Now it's time to do a little bit more of a diagnostic workup. And so typically, that starts with an upper endoscopy, where we'll, we'll give you sedation. We'll go down with a camera, down into the throat, look at the upper esophagus, the esophagus, which is the tube that takes food from the throat, brings it down to the stomach, kind of right underneath the rib cage. And we'll take a look at that and see, are there any areas that are narrowed or we call strictures? Is there scar tissue? Um, are there, is there evidence of any other condition that could mimic some of the GERD symptoms? So conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis. We could take biopsies of the esophagus, take little tissue samples, send it to pathologist to see if there's any inflammation in there. And then we'll also look down where the esophagus connects to the stomach, and that's what we call the gastroesophageal junction, or GEJ for short. Some people call it EGJ. Um, but it's basically a, a, a valve that prevents for most patients from, uh, you know, contents in the stomach from coming back in the esophagus. And we'll look to see, is there any inflammation there? Are there any changes of chronic reflux, such as Barrett's esophagus or strictures? Make sure there's no cancer, although that's, you know, it's rare for the majority of patients with GERD. And then we'll also look in the stomach to see, okay, is there something else that could mimic pain symptoms like ulcers, erosions, et cetera. And, And then we'll finally look into the small intestine. as part of a normal upper endoscopy. So that's usually the first step. Now, depending on the individual patient, we might consider adding what's called a pH study. And so what we're actually doing in that case, and there's a probe-based pH study, uh, commonly known as a BRAVO. There's also a catheter-based pH study. And there's different situations where we might pick one or the other. But what that's actually doing is gonna actually check the acid levels or the pH in the esophagus. And we're going to see, okay, you're having symptoms. Now, what is the acid level in the esophagus? What is the pH at that time? And does it correlate with your symptoms? You might have a button to press. You might be able to report what's going on. Say, okay, yeah, at this moment, I'm feeling, you know, burning. Are the acid levels high or is the pH low? You know, and, and we'll get more data that way. So at the very minimal, just an upper endoscopy, and that's usually where we'll start. And then depending on how, you know, the individual patient's doing or how far they want to take it, if they're interested in procedure, we may add that. Second step, which is the more diagnostic testing. Now, it's not mandatory to do that in everyone, but um, if if you're if you're kind of going along that line, that's what we do.
1: Wonderful, Thank you for that. So once they're diagnosed with GERD, what uh, how is it what ways can they manage GERD, or what are your recommendations when treating patients? Yeah,
2: and this is where it gets back into that whole concept of GERD as a spectrum of conditions or a spectrum of symptoms and or different flavors depending on how you want to say it rather than just one thing so you know first line therapy and acid blocker it's great to do but you can imagine that you know the way the acid blockers work for example i'll just start with that um actually you know what i'll take a step back sorry about that so let, let's just lay out the, the the spectrum so if GERD is a spectrum the treatments are also in a spectrum and i kind of describe it uh, to my patients and what's the least invasive to the most invasive and then kind of take it from there so the, the least invasive is lifestyle changes. So not medications, not a procedure, not an intervention, but just let's see if we can do things to your lifestyle. And then we'll talk about medications, we'll talk about uh, anti-reflux procedures such as TIF with hiatal hernia repair, and then eventually traditional surgical application. But before I go- jump into that, the way that I describe how GERD happens is a little different than what I just did. Now, when we're talking about what we're gonna intervene, you really wanna nail down what might be going on with the anatomy inside. And so usually I'll start kind of discussing this, so I'll do it now. But basically, just as I described, when you swallow, there's a couple of what we call sphincter muscles. These are round muscles in the esophagus. One of them's right here in the throat. the other one's that right at that gastroesophageal junction. So when you eat the, the top sphincter opens, the kind of ball of food goes into your esophagus, and your esophagus, in a coordinated contraction, squeezes that down and kind of propels it. Almost like if you're trying to like squeeze that last bit of toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. So it kind of pushes that last bit down. It gets to the bottom of the esophagus. The valve should open, the food goes through, and then the valve should close. And that's what normal anatomy is going on. i oh, sorry, sorry, everything's doing fine. Now if you have symptoms of reflux, there's a few different things that could be abnormal about that process. The first one and the most common is that the muscle down here, that sphincter, also called the lower esophageal sphincter, which is at the gastroesophageal junction, so kind of a lot of business down here, that could be relaxing more frequently than it should be. Now, all of us have relaxations of the lower esophageal sphincter. We call it a transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation, T-L-E-S-R, that's the abbreviation, it's a mouthful. but really it just means that it's opening more frequently than not. And when it becomes bothersome, then we call it a disease or a disorder, but everyone has these. Now, if it's causing symptoms, there's a few things that can change and this this type of thing which just transient les relaxations are the ones that really respond to lifestyle measures and maybe an acid blocker so what are the lifestyle measures well what's going to make that valve open more than it should that's really what i'm trying to ask so number one there's uh there's kind of physical factors so if a patient has a big belly you know a lot of girth weight overweight obesity very very common that pressure is putting pressure on the valve, and it may be causing it to open, especially after you've got a big meal in there. Number two is eating too much, so overeating. You're, you know, it's Thanksgiving or something like that. We get a lot of people coming in with reflux after the holidays because they're eating these big delicious meals. A lot of pressure in the stomach on that valve is going to cause it to loosen up. You know, it's a valve, but it's not. You can overcome it with pressure. Number three there's actual things that will make it. So there's the physical aspects, but number three is now things that will actually cause the muscle to relax. And the way I describe it, it's all the good stuff. It's fried foods, it's chocolate, caffeine, uh, peppermint, and other kind of you know spearmint, those types of things, what we call carminatives, alcohol, um, smoking, and tobacco. So all those things actually will cause the muscle to relax. So fatty foods, chocolate, uh, caffeine, alcohol, uh, carminatives, such as peppermint. Um, so people that are, they love peppermint tea. That's you know something that we forget to ask. Um, carbonated beverages, again, that volume kind of pushing it open um, and smoking. All those things re- we've, we know one way or the other to some degree relaxes that muscle. The muscle is not tight enough and that's going to cause it to open. Now, people are like, well, what about citrus and what about tomatoes and things like that? Those actually don't relax the valve, but if you reflux those and those go up into the esophagus, you get the same burning sensation that you do. So those are actually okay. But when you know, when you, you know, so oftentimes if someone wants to try these kind of diet related changes, I will actually have to partner with the dietitian um, and they could go through these because I don't want you to cut all of that stuff down. It might not be that every single one of those is a problem, but maybe start by cutting them down and then reintroducing one at a time in a controlled fashion so that way you don't have to live I, I would not be able to survive without a cup of coffee you know, in the morning I, and i love chocolate you know those that would be miserable for me so you know it doesn't mean you have to cut all those things out but just try to identify which one is the problem and then you could try see if that works okay so that's that's really the the things that are working on the lower soft sphincter. next would be some changes to your posture so you know if you ate a big meal don't lay down right away you know stay upright go for a walk for a couple hours eat your meals sooner before bedtime Um, Some people do well with a wedge pillow. So, not just like a a pillow that gets their head up, but the whole torso. So, they get a wedge under the mattress, or they get one of those mattresses that can recline, or they get a wedge and actually wedge it up. So, those will be kind of the ideas of lifestyle modification. So, uh, losing weight, stopping smoking, that will treat a lot of conditions, but definitely for GERD. Um, Changing the diet, identifying what food triggers there may be, and then position changes, not laying down right after eating a big meal. Those would be kind of the lifestyle things. So, that's for the lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. Now, what else can happen? Well, now we have to look a little bit closer at the gastroesophageal junction. I mentioned one part of it, which is that sphincter muscle, the round lower esophageal sphincter. But it's more complicated than that. Otherwise, we would end the talk here. You know, there's more going on. And the important thing is that that's actually just one part of the anti-reflux mechanism. So, what in our body prevents reflux? Well, the sphincter is one. It's an important one. We just talked about it. But the other part of the sphincter, uh, or, the, or the valve, I should say, is actually the diaphragm. And this gets into kind of what we do with, with more procedure related treatments. But diaphragm, big flat muscle that we use to breathe, take a deep breath, the diaphragm contracts. Well, the esophagus goes right through it, and right below there, and kind of in that same area, is where the, the GE junction and that sphincter, that lower esophageal sphincter, are. Now, the diaphragm is not just an opening for it it actually will put a little kink or tug on the bottom of the esophagus, kind of like an elbow. Or if you can imagine like a running hose uh, outside, if I take a little kink and just put a bend, it's gonna slow down the flow rate. So the diaphragm is important because it does kind of gives a little bit of outside bulk, but also tugs on the bottom of the esophagus and that kink prevents stuff from coming up. So when you swallow, the kink will relax, the food will go through, but that kink kind of closes up the valve again. So what I consider that, so when you think about the, the valve, the lower esophageal sphincter of the muscle is really on the inside part but the outside part of the valve is the diaphragm and that's super important to understand that it's not just the sphincter it's we forget about it and we i think really because of the TIF procedure started to understand how important that is um, and the surgeons kind of learned this as well when they were doing their fun applications in the past but and then you know just for thoroughness the other part of the of the anti-reflux mechanism is what we call the sling fibers in the stomach there's a little connection between the stomach and the esophagus that are kind of hooked together to make the stomach in a nice configuration. If you're looking at a picture, there's that sharp angle between the bottom of the esophagus and the fundus of the stomach. And so, those three mechanisms round out our anti-reflux valve. So, it's the inside valve, which is the lower esophageal sphincter, the outside valve, which is the diaphragm, and then the sling fibers, which create, create that nice angle or the angle at the bottom. And so, when I'm, when I'm looking, when I'm doing an endoscopy, when I'm talking to a patient and getting the sense of their symptoms. Those two things are vitally important. Symptoms alone, sometimes I could kind of predict what's going on. Uh, so, for example, if I have someone who has regurgitation, they tell me that, oh yeah, when I eat dinner and when I lay down even a couple hours later, boom, the stuff comes up right away. That's not just a, a transient relaxation of the, of the sphincter. That's that the valve, the outside part of the valve is too loose. And when that happens, part of the stomach will come up into the chest and this is what we call the hiatal hernia so that's a very commonly known term but that's actually what happens so to simplify it the diaphragm is too wide and the stomach is sliding up you lose that kink and that's what we call a hiatal hernia and so you know, when i'm talking to patients i'm trying to imagine okay based on your symptoms what might be going on inside it's a sphincter problem oh yeah you pro- i'm sure you probably have a hiatal hernia and then when 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 you're not sure and, and usually we're doing this anyway to kind of plan for any future procedure we'll do an endoscopy and take a look so it's a very long-winded answer but that's really what I'm starting with. I'm starting with lifestyle changes, and then if that's not working, um, I'll. Uh, yeah, we were talking about the treatments, but that's really what, when the lifestyle changes don't work, I'm thinking that there may be a second problem. All right, any questions? I'll, and then I'm going to move on to PPI briefly.
1: And that was a fantastic explanation. There's so much going on, and and again, everyone is different, and you're doing your best to assess based on what they're reporting to you, what the tests are showing, and Developing a care plan that makes sense for that individual yep. and starting basic with the lifestyle modifications, diet modifications. You know, those are things that often precede any kind of uh, surgical yep. intervention. So we'll pause for a second and have Wendy uh, give us an idea if there's any uh, audience questions coming in. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, uh, the procedural interventions yep. after that. But Wendy, any any questions from the audience? We have a
3: couple. Yes, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Um, Dr. Thacker, enjoying the the conversation so far. Um, so you just touched on this. Um, Jackie was asking if an adjustable bed would help, and to your point on posture, I'm I'm thinking you're going to go with the affirmative on that. Do you have a lot of patients who who ask about that? Is that something that that many of them try?
2: Yeah, it's, that's a, it's a great question, and I think it's one of those things where it's worth a try because it's it's relatively simple to do. I mean, some people, it, it's hard to sleep reclined and, and to invest in a wedge, but um, I think it's a little bit based on how bad your symptoms are. If you're someone that's, you know, it's just once in a while I'm getting these symptoms, then, you know, you could try some of these lifestyle changes, just, you know, make your dinner a little earlier. But if you're someone where every time you lay down, there's stuff coming up into your chest, it, it the lifestyle change is probably not going to be enough. And so it's a little bit based on your individual situation, how bad are your symptoms? Is it every meal? Is it every day? Is it once a week, once a month? You know, and, and so, um, if you can try it, absolutely. You know, even the easier than, than the reclining or, or that is just go for, a, uh, you know, eat dinner early. You know, instead of eating at 7 p.m., eat at 5.30 or 6 p.m. and then go for a walk uh, afterwards for a couple hours or walk around for an hour and then sit upright to watch TV before and not in bed, you know, sit, sit in a chair. And so that, that it's the same concept, kind of just gravity letting dinner empty, if you will. Um, but the other part of things is that, and you kind of touch on what, what the other option would, which we didn't talk too much about yet, but you know, when those are not working, those lifestyle changes, that's when we'll toss in these PPI medications, these acid blockers. And if someone responds, great, but if someone's not responding, the reason may be that it's an anatomic problem and that same, just like lifestyle, you know, regurgitation is not going to get helped by an acid blocking medication. Yeah, what's regurgitated is not going to be as acidy, if you will. It's going to be less acidic, but you're still regurgitating stuff, right? There's liquid in the stomach, there's food. And so if someone's not responding to lifestyle or they're not responding to PPI, depending on how severe their symptoms are, that's when my, you know, I start thinking, you know, there may be something with the anatomy rather than just a run-of-the-mill reflux issue.
3: That's That's a great point. And actually, um, Gloria chimed in, and as you were discussing uh, just testing, she said, I, "I'm not confident that the Bravo worked. Um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe she's referring to herself, but that might lead to some discussion on, you know, is all reflux acid reflux, or is there non-acid reflux?"
2: Yeah, that's right. If if someone, you know, it, it, you nailed it. It's you know, the Bravo. There's different ways to do the Bravo, and it really. Is determined by what question you're trying to answer. So I, I personally use what's called a 96 hour Bravo. So I'll actually have someone stop all of their medications. Our typical protocol here is to stop all PPIs for a week and all H2 blockers, which would be like Fomotidine or Ritidine for at least a few days. And basically, we want to see you all natural. And let's see your natural state, no medications. And for the first two days, we have you wear a bravo and for, for those that are not familiar you we put the little probe in your esophagus during an endoscopy and then you wear this recorder belt and has buttons on there that you could press when you're having the symptoms that we're trying to work up and so if if uh if you wear it the first two days or go okay i, I had heartburn right after eating you push the you know the meal button or at bedtime this button so and what we'll do then is we'll look at a we'll look at the bravo results say do you have acid reflux or not and b does it correlate that when you push the button you had a lot of acid in your esophagus. And that, that's how we confirm the diagnosis of acid reflux. Now, you're right that the BRAVO really, it's a pH test. So if there's other stuff coming up, that will not be assessed by the BRAVO. And that's when we will consider what's called a, impedance, a catheter-based impedance test, which is a catheter that goes down through the nose in the esophagus. And sometimes we'll put it on for 24 hours, 48 hours, et cetera. Um, and, and that will actually be able to tell if there's other liquid coming up into the esophagus as well, not, not just acid. For the Bravo, the second part of that 96 hours, so the first 48 hours are no medications. I'll have the patients restart their acid blocker. So now we've established whether they have reflux or not. And then the second two days or the second 48 hours, we'll see, hey, did you respond to the acid blocker? And it's like, hey, your acid, your, the PPIs are working in terms of the acid levels, but if they're not working on the symptoms, then exactly, it could be that they have something else refluxing up, especially if their main symptom is regurgitation. But if it's just pain and it's not a regurgitation issue, then we might be treating it the wrong way. It might not be an acid problem at all. It might be a hypersensitivity or what we call a functional heartburn or esophageal hypersensitivity, which is kind of very oversimplifications that nerves are going haywire and sending the same signals as reflux, but it's not a reflux issue. Um, and it's treated with a different class of medications that calm the nerves down completely. So if the, you know, depending on what, if the Bravo was, was not treating uh, your symptoms because it was regurgitation, then that would make a lot of sense. Or if it's pain, but the Bravo's telling you you don't have reflux, then it may be that we gotta, we gotta think about a different pathway to treat and, and, and not the acid pathway.
3: Very good. Thank you. I think, I mean, I, I think I speak for every viewer right now who is maybe taking a PPI, whether it's working or not, and have them, you know, I, I think I felt them all just go, oh my gosh, not be on my PPIs for a week or, or a couple of days. Yeah. What would I do? So um, it, it's good to know, you know, what that test truly yields if they can get through that initial period. But yeah. it's so funny, we, we come across folks a lot who will say, gosh, i my PPI is not even working right now. And I still had that same reaction.
2: Yeah. So. No, yeah. And if, if you've been on a PPI for a long time, you know, it's not just are you just stop it. We'd have them tapered off nice and gentle. Because if you stop a PPI after a long time, you're going to get rebound. And then you definitely have reflux, even if you didn't before. But, you know, this goes out to the, you know, PPI's. I, I know we, we didn't talk too much about it yet, but, you know, they, they have, a, there's a lot of attention given to side effects and adverse events and safety issues. And, you know, their PPI's are absolutely safe. You know, I've taken them. I, I have family members. I have no problem with it if it's done for the right reason. That's the most important part. So, you know, they, they used to be prescription only. Now they're over the counter. And you can get a big pack at Costco, etc. But, you know, what we're seeing that a lot of, you know, it's all risk benefit. There's, there's almost no medication out there that's completely risk-free. But if the benefit's high enough that, hey, your symptoms are under control, that's a good benefit. You have reflux and you're miserable. That's, that's a good reason to take a PPI. Or if you have a, a complication of GERD, like, like a a stricture or Barrett's esophagus or early cancer or something like that, that's a good reason to be on a PPI, despite the side effects, despite the possible risk of, you know, all the things that you hear about um, in kidney. I hear all types of things. And, you know, the the risks are there, but it's weighing the risk versus the benefit. So if you're you're on a PPI and they're not working, and, and it may be because you don't actually have GERD, but you actually have hypersensitivity or something else, then you're taking it without much benefit but the risk is still there. And so, you know, so the important thing about these Bravo tests and other things is, let's make sure we're treating the right thing and we're treating it with the right medication. And so, yeah. you know, one of the things I do is that, if I have someone that, you know, this is not reflux, we've done multiple tests, you should, I don't see any reason for you to be on a PPI. And then I'm more worried about whether these these adverse events and, and the safety issues are are more important or not.
3: Very good. And that, you know, Lynn, I, I kind of think we're going through, you know, our, our discussion on PPIs right now. I'm going to go ahead and actually just um, throw in a couple more questions. Um, the, Addie's asking, you know, how long should I stay on medicine for acid reflux? But before we get to that, maybe we talk about how important it is to, when you're experiencing symptoms, to know when to see a doctor and then make sure that folks, you know, understand the importance of seeing an expert versus self-medicating?
2: Yeah, great question. So, I'll, I'll start with that one first. Um, so, if, if you have pretty run-of-the-mill symptoms and it responds very reliably to PPI and you're less than, you know, 50 years old and, and it's just a time-to-time thing, I think it's okay to try, you know, for a couple of weeks. They're safe enough and this is a, a safe enough, a common enough condition that, um, that you, you could try to self-medicate. That's okay. Um, It's, um, you know, the right way to do it, PPIs don't work right away. It takes three to five days for really to kick in. So, it's not like a Tums or something where you take it and, oh, my acid's still there. So, you know, it does take it. So, often what we see is I tried it uh, on your own and then they come see a a physician and it's actually that they didn't take it reliably or, or, you know, correctly that you need to be on it for at least a week or two. I I almost never say do it shorter than two weeks before making any decisions on whether they're going to work or not. Um, but uh, so, so I would say if you're going to do a, a pulse, do a two week pulse, best take PPIs um, with the with the exception of Dexalan Soprazol, which, uh, which is Dexalan, all the other ones, um, best taken about 30 to 60 minutes before you eat. 15 minutes if, if that's tough to do. But the reason is that when you eat is when you make acid. And so if you take the PPI with the food, the damage is already done. You've already made the acid. So you get it on board, you get it absorbed um, and it's ready in your stomach. Know, from the from the blood bloodstream side, ready to block the acid before you eat. So with the self medicating and it's not working, it's often that it's just not being taken the right way because there's a little bit of a complex mechanism. Now that's for kind of the run the mill patient with no red flags. What would be red flags? A new diagnosis of reflux at at an older age. That's you know we're on fifty years and. I haven't had any reflux in my life and suddenly I've got these new symptoms that raises suspicion just a little bit like, hey, what? you didn't have it already. But now suddenly, is there something else going on? Um, If someone is taking it and they're not responding to treatment, they're taking it correctly and they're not responding, the symptoms are still there. That would be a reason to see a doctor. Someone with kind of atypical symptoms like weight loss, or pain that's kind of not not quite typical heartburn, you know, not just the usual oh yeah I get heartburn after I eat very classic. So a weird story that would be enough to say, hey, you know, this, this is not just run the mill reflux. Uh, family history of esophageal cancer or Barrett's esophagus. Um, these are kind of, you know, th- there's more but these are kind of the red flags or the alarm signs that just say, you know, there there may be something more than just simple reflux going on. And so that's when I would I would seek out a care specialist. So not working with Plan A for the run-of-the-mill reflux, or some kind of alarm sim- sign or symptom. For for uh, for the other cases, would be when I I go and get more evaluation.
3: Excellent, thank you. Um. So if so, I, I think what we'll do is maybe uh, jump back over to. Um. I've I've got a lot more questions coming in, but just for the sake of keeping on track for the evening and covering um, things maybe kick it back over to you, Lynn, to talk about uh, next steps after after medications um, and those possibilities have been exhausted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much, Dr. Thacker, for going into such detail and uh, explaining things so thoroughly. These are definitely questions we hear every day on or at least every Tuesday when we do these TIFF talks. Wow. So um, it's a great overview and it's, a, it's a great to have your perspective. Um, you touched on uh, Managing reflux via lifestyle, diet, and other uh, medic medical modifications, um, like PPIs. But what what are some other available treatment options? You you mentioned touched on the TIF procedure briefly. So can you talk to us more a little bit about, about those types of interventions? Yeah,
2: and this is this is why I had such a kind of a long winded answer to the anatomy because this is really when when I you know I'm a I'm a proceduralist, so I'm starting to think about this stuff right away. Often patients have tried and failed the lifestyle and diet measures. They failed the, the PPI therapy, um, and so I, I start to think about, okay, what's going on with the anatomy, and what can I offer them from a procedural standpoint? So, step one was a diet and lifestyle. Step two was trying medical therapy, and for the majority of patients, that, that may be what we call the status quo. They come into the office and that's what they've tried, and that's always an option you know, for, for many, many, many patients, but there's situations where it may not be the best option. Number one would be, it's not working. You know, so again, lifestyle measures and PPIs won't really help. For example, severe regurgitation of acid, non-acid, whatever it might be. If you're if you, if you lay down and you're finding stuff, you wake up in the morning with stuff in your mouth. You know the the medications will make it less acid, but it's just not working. So plan A is not working. The diet, lifestyle, medications would be a reason to think about something more advanced. Plan B or this the, this sorry the plan plan A would be that. that. The other the other reason to consider a procedure is if. You don't want to be on a PPI for a long term. So, I've had patients that are in their like 20s or 30s and they have reflux already and they may even have a hiatal hernia. And, you know, we just talked about it's an appropriate thing to do PPI, but there's patients that are facing, uh, you know, decades, literally decades, the majority of their life having to be on these medications. So, then you say, okay, now those, those side effects and long-term effects, you know, I, I don't really know, you know, anyone that's been on it for 40 or 50 years if, if patients, you know, very, very young. So if you're trying to get off of PPI or at least reduce the dosing, maybe you're requiring twice a day dosing, you know, plus something else. And maybe we have a way to kind of uh, fix the anatomy so you don't rely on them so much. So now we talk about the procedures so that and really the most aggressive would be the standard of care, which is still fundoplication, and, and usually it's the Nissen fundoplication, and then kind of the middle ground option is where I position TIF. And with any anti-reflux procedure, whether it's an endoscopic procedure or surgery, there's two things that I'm thinking about. And it's those same things that I'm thinking about when I'm trying to figure out what the anatomy is, which is, is it a problem with the inside valve or the outside valve? and is, or, or both, really, is usually what it is. So, the TIF procedure is really good at treating the lower esophageal sphincter. And uh, and, and that's really what we're doing. And what we, you know, you probably, I think your audience have probably seen some of the videos, but if not, you know, what we're doing is we get to the bottom of the esophagus where it has that junction with the stomach, we tug on it and pull it down, and then use these little H fasteners to kind of tack it together. So it's almost like if I pinched my sleeve and pulled it down and then put some tags through it. And we do it in about a 270 degree to a 300 degree wrap. Um, and we're only working on that kind of the inside part of the stomach right around the bottom of the esophagus, we call that the cardia into the fundus a little bit. And what the TIF is really doing, it is tightening the lower esophageal sphincter, it's adding bulk around that muscle. But the other thing that's very important is that it's adding length to it. And it's making it kind of more floppy. And I, I actually think that that's probably the most important part about the TIF, which is the floppiness. And the best analogy I could still come up with is a whoopee cushion. So for those who are at home, you know, you could Google a picture of a whoopee cushion right now, and, and what, what, what I'm saying is that the lower soft gel sphincter is a flap valve. I'm making it, especially with a tiff, I'm making the, the valve even longer and more floppy. And if you look at a whoopee cushion, that valve, which is that flat part is a flap valve. There's nothing on the outside, keeping that held together. You know, there's no one squeezing, there's nothing on there. There's no rings or magnets or anything. It's just because it's a flap. The air doesn't come out of the whoopee if you unless you you push on it you know you sit on it whatever you're using to make the noise so that that is a flap valve now if i took that so it's a a nice there's a good length on it if i took a pair of scissors and i cut that valve really short like right to the to the balloon part you can imagine that stuff's going to flow through really really fast and so that's what happens if the flap valve is too short so with the tiff i'm taking a short kind of high pressure zone that's what we call it and I'm making it longer, floppier, and tightening it. And that's really what the TIFF is doing. And that's it. it gives you the the benefit of that anti reflux valve by those mechanisms. If there's any engineers in there, I had to learn this back when I was studying engineering. It's it's a it's a flow law. That flow is is proportional to how long something is and how tight something is. But you, a little bit of tightening goes a long a long way because it's is the fourth power. And so I don't need to do a crazy tight wrap to still get a lot of benefit from the from keeping the flow rates down, but lengthening goes a long way. And that's, that's where I kind of describe what TIFF is doing. Now, let's say that there is a hiatal hernia and that the diaphragm is also wide. Unfortunately, because that's on the outside of the esophagus, it's the outside part of the valve, right. I can't reach that with a TIFF procedure. I could work on the inside valve with the TIFF, but the TIF, the, the diaphragm really, the only way to repair it, at least right now in 2022 is a surgeon Uh, going in, usually laparoscopically or robotically, and they have to go down and dissect down to that diaphragm, and they'll see that it's wide, and that's what they call the hiatus. It's a diaphragmatic hiatus, and that's where the hiatal comes from in hiatal hernia, and so they'll take that hernia, and then they'll put usually some stitches or some other fasteners and kind of tighten it up. So, it's like if I've got a circle, they'll put, tighten up, pull the esophagus down back into position, and what they call reducing the hernia, tighten up the diaphragm, and that's how they repair the hernia. Now at that point, you have an option. And one of those options is to do a TIF. And so what I will do is I'll operate with a surgeon and they'll get the procedure started. And then once they've repaired the hernia, the outside valve, I'll go in with the TIF and do and repair the inside valve and make it longer and floppier. And so that's what we call a combined hiatal hernia repair with TIF or CTIF. OK, now the traditional option. Now we get to, to traditional surgery which is let's just take Nissen fundoplication or one of its variations, like a toupee fundoplication. What they're doing is part A is the same. They actually will dissect down and they'll tighten up the diaphragm and and reduce the hernia and fix the outside valve. But part B is now they're going to actually take the top of the stomach and wrap it around in some amount of degree, wrap it around that high pressure zone from the outside of the esophagus. So while I'm working just on the inner wall of the stomach, they're actually working on you know kind of both walls of the stomach and wrapping it around and that's what we call a fun, a traditional surgical fund application so this is by way of saying that if you have no hiatal hernia a, a tiff by itself may be an option for you if you have a hiatal hernia the problem is if we just do a tiff alone it's not going to work very well you have to fix both the outside valve and the inside valve together and that's where part a would be the hernia repair which a surgeon has to do and then part B would either be a TIFF or it could be a Nissen or some, some variation of a Nissan, so a traditional wrap, All right, Does that make sense, Lynn?
1: Absolutely, it makes perfect sense. And I love your analogy to the whoopee cushion. I don't yeah. think we've yet to hear that yeah. one on a TIFF Talk Wendy, but uh, it's so perfect. The visual has been there all along. We just missed it, I guess. It's a flat
2: top, uh, it's right in front of us. Uh, uh,
1: it, that, it's excellent. Yeah. Um, and then just helping folks understand that there's still so much going on internally with some. And if there is a hiatal hernia that it is still, uh, they still have the option to be evaluated and have that repaired and also go through the transoral incision list fundoplication, also known as TIF yeah. in the same setting, yeah. if I'll you just, will. I'll just
2: mention, you know, when, when TIF kind of the 1.0 version or, you know, over 10 years ago, um, I think that fact about the diaphragm and how important it was, was underappreciated. So you know, yeah. the, the surgeons are already in there, they're, they're reducing it, they'll tighten up the diaphragm so stuff doesn't slide back up. But if you do a TIF on a, a wide hiatus or wide diaphragm, it doesn't work very well. And that's one of the reasons that if you look at the data on TIF, um, if you're looking at older data, you might be looking at patients with a hiatal hernia that had the TIF alone, but they didn't have the diaphragm repair. And so that kind of muddied the waters in a lot of the older data. But now we're starting to see, you know, this really the TIF 2.0, combined with the hiatal hernia repair. So it's important when you're looking at studies and data that you're looking at kind of the more modern techniques, just like any procedure, uh, including the Nissen, which has changed since it was first created. Um, you know Things evolve as we learn. And that's, that's definitely true here where we're now being pretty selective on which patients will do just TIF by itself. We will say, you know what, it's, it's, it's just not the best thing for you to do this. You really should get that hernia repaired. And the way that we figure out whether you have a hiatal hernia, you know, GI doctors, a regular general GI doctor measure a hernia in the up-down, how far up did the stomach slide. A GI doctor that does TIF or or works at an esophageal center is actually going to look at it, not just the up-down length of the hernia, but go into the stomach, turn around and look at the diaphragm and how wide it is and look at the width of the diaphragm, which is how the surgeons look at it right there and they're operating. They're not looking at how far up the stomach went. They're looking at, okay, how wide is this? And that's, you know, those are two different ways to measure the hernia. So, while I get a lot of patients that say, okay, I had an endoscopy and uh, they told me I didn't have a hiatal hernia, but then I'll repeat the endoscopy and I'll take a look, you know, with or without a Bravo probe, but I'll go in there, really take my time, blow up the stomach and see, okay, let me see not just how far the stomach's sliding, but I'll actually see, can I make the diaphragm present itself and see how wide the diaphragm is. So, very, very common, a GI will say there's no hiatal hernia, but they're just it, We're not trained, as, and I, I wasn't until I started doing really TIFF procedures, to look at the diaphragm as closely. We're really worrying about how much the stomach is sliding when most GI. So it's not a knock on GIs if, if, uh, if patients encounter that just the way that we, you know, we haven't had uh, to any reason before now.
1: Yeah, it's a great explanation and, and it really speaks to, again, your collaboration in a multidisciplinary approach too. You have both sides, both views, and uh, both specialties caring for that patient.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, th- this kind of gets into um, you know what we-, we could talk about if we want, but now you've got these kind of options. You've got diet and lifestyle. You've got medications. You've got TIF by itself. If you have a hiatal hernia repair, then you're looking at hernia repair with TIF or hernia repair plus the nissen you know the, the, that or, or, or fundification so how do you pick which one and that's really you know i don't know if you want to get into that now but when you're thinking about okay i want to do some kind of procedure um i could jump into that if you'd like wendy i thought you were going to say something there
3: sure certainly and please feel free the one thing that i was going to ask too that that we often see on these chats is um once the hiatal hernia becomes a topic of discussion people will say well, can I just, if, if they've been diagnosed with GERD, they say, what if I just have the hiatal hernia repair? Will that take care of everything?
2: Yeah. Good question. So the the answer is maybe for a little while, but um, unfortunately that we, you know, from, from trials in the past with any of these things, if you do one without the other, it doesn't work very long. It doesn't work very well. And so that's, that's the challenge. So there are certain cases where a surgeon has to do that, they, that maybe there's a lot of scar tissue or um, or the patient's esophagus is shortened up so much because it was such a severe hiatal hernia that it's all the way up in the chest and they can't they physically can't pull it all the way down and, and do a wrap. There's a variety of reasons. Maybe they don't want to do such an aggressive dissection of the top of the stomach or the fundus, but there are cases where yeah, they have to do the hernia repair without the wrap. Um, it doesn't work very well, and, and there's a pretty high rate of hernias coming back. Um, and you know, in, in general, it's not 100% durable. Um, and it's a, it's a challenge for everyone, you know, even the best surgeons for sure. So um, it, the general theme is that if you do one without the other, it's just you, you're, you have to set the expectations a lot lower, not as durable or effective. Very
3: good. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, we did have uh, a, a couple of questions come in about Barrett's esophagus. If we could backtrack a little bit, maybe have you talk oh. about Barrett's. Um, how it's you know how, how you evaluate for it, what it is, and uh, ongoing treatments.
2: Yeah. So so what Barrett's esophagus is, it's a change in the lining of the bottom of esophagus. Uh, the esophagus is a certain type of tissue in there, but the, the 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 prevailing theory, which no one you know, there's no reason not to believe this is true, but is that you get chronic acid reflux and your esophagus is getting damaged. And people will get what's called esophagitis or, or, or other inflammation of the esophagus. And the esophagus will start kind of defending itself by changing the lining of the esophagus to look more like the intestine. And uh, because the intestine can handle some acid before it neutralizes it. And so that's a very simple way of uh, oversimplification. But basically, it's a change in the lining of the, of the tissue in the esophagus that looks like intestinal tissue. And that's why they call it intestinal metaplasia. So, you know, it, it, the belief is that it is a consequence of chronic acid reflux. So, if I see a patient that has Barrett's esophagus, they have reflux in my mind. That, that defines them as having it. Now, a common thing is once you get Barrett's esophagus, sometimes the symptoms will go away. And that, that can be challenging. It's like, oh, yeah, I had reflux for a few decades in my 20s and 30s. And then, you know, over my 40s, it's weird. It kind of just went away because, again, it's a defense mechanism in some ways. And the lining is there to, to kind of guard against the damage from the reflux. That would be okay except for the problem is that barrett's esophagus is considered a pre-cancerous change meaning that a very small subset of patients will go on where the barrett's will take steps towards becoming esophageal cancer the big challenge we have in the field is really twofold actually the first challenge is finding everyone with barrett's second one is figuring out which one of those patients is going to get esophageal cancer and it's not everyone the minority of barrett's patients go to get cancer but we, we don't have a great way yet to identify it so it usually takes uh, endoscopies with biopsies on some scheduled basis um, if you have no kind of steps towards cancer just run the mill barrett's current guidelines are every three to five years you get an endoscopy uh, we're doing a lot of work here at, at ucla and also kind of at a national level to look for less invasive tests to evaluate for barrett's and also to see if the barrett's have any precancerous changes in it but that in a nutshell it's a it's a it's a change in the lining as a consequence of reflux that can become cancer uh, of the esophagus and it's esophageal cancer is one of the um, fastest rising types of cancer in the country and so that's why it's, it's a problem
3: and so on that topic um, we had chad ask if if tiff is something that can treat barrett's
2: yeah good question so in general the the when, once you have barrett's it's not believed that you can reverse it if it's taking steps towards cancer We can burn it or freeze it or there's a variety or cut it out, you know, depending. That's a whole, we could do a whole talk on just the treatments for Barrett's. But, um, you know, once it's there, it's there for the most part. Now, what we're worried about is, okay, let's say you have run-of-the-mill Barrett's. Can we prevent it from getting worse and taking the steps towards cancer, eventually becoming cancer? And can we prevent it from getting longer and and going up the esophagus? The prevailing belief is that if you block acid, uh, then it will slow down the rate of it turning into uh, dysplasia, which is those precancerous steps, and it'll slow down the rate of progression of Barrett's. So for that reason, yes, we should do some kind of treatment. So if you have Barrett's esophagus, almost, that's a great reason for you to be on an acid blocking medication. But if that's not working, for all the reasons we talked about, either they don't want to take the medication at high doses or uh, they have other symptoms, then yes, an anti-reflux procedure would then be an option. And then we'd go through that same algorithm, do you have a hiatal hernia or not? We'll go through the pros and cons of surgery versus a TIF or or a hiatal hernia repair with TIFF and then uh, and then offer an anti reflux procedure. So, absolutely, yeah. Anything you can do to, to reduce the acid, we think, will help.
3: Perfect. Thank you, um, Lynn. One more, and then I'll I'll kick back over to you. Since we were just talking about medications, this one is um, this one's a little bit beyond GERD, but want to make sure that that since Andrea has tuned in, we we um, can kind of point her in the right direction. Um, uh-huh. I was treated for malt lymphoma uh, with radiation. Now they say I have intestinal metaplasia and chronic inflammation. Other than ameprazole, what can I take uh, to treat this? Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, as- assuming, uh, assuming we're talking about intestinal metaplasia in the esophagus because you get in other places. So, so if you have intestinal metaplasia in the esophagus, that's the definition of Barrett's esophagus. Um, for most people, that's probably enough. You know, it's... It, and, If you were you know I I don't know that just because you have it I would go crazy taking a bunch of more medications Uh, but if you're having symptom breakthrough or if there's some reason to believe that it's not working such as they repeat an endoscopy and there's still active inflammation there that's not being controlled by one medication um, some people will benefit from adding a second type of acid treating medication Uh, the most common would be an h2 blocker which is kind of the the original acid blocking medication so something like uh, Fomotidine. Um, but the problem is it doesn't work on everyone. After about a month, the effect can wear off in a significant portion of patients. And also, you don't get that much extra bang for your buck, even though you're taking two medications. It's, PPIs are pretty pretty good. They, they reduce acid levels, maybe 70% or so. And it's not like you're going from 70 to 90% by adding an H2 blocker. It's maybe you don't know, get 3 4 5 10% at most. Um, the other kind of class of medications are Barrier medications, so things like Gaviscon, which is like a, it, it's an algae kind of gel that forms a raft on top of the fluid in your stomach, so it's a barrier to keep stuff from going up. But that's also, you know, kind of small beans compared to omeprazole, which is, which is, uh, you know, tried and true. Um, you could try a one-time class switch if there's active inflammation, uh, go from pantoprazole, omeprazole to pantoprazole or something else. Sometimes one works, than the other. But um, if it's just intestinal metaplasia, your symptoms are controlled there's no inflammation in the esophagus causing problems. I don't know that I'd go crazy adding more stuff. You know, that, it, I'd have to look through individual situation here. But um, if there's still inflammation or something else, then we could try these things. But if those still don't work, then we have a con- you know conversation about the risk benefit of doing an anti-reflux procedure. And That would be a reason that, hey, it's not working. Um, if you're feeling fine, that might be overkill. But you know, if there's chronic inflammation, no one likes to see that. And so that's when we, we bring in what we're going to talk about here with procedures.
3: Perfect. OK,
1: Lynn, back to you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. And I think we hear that question a lot, if I have Barrett's. and am I still a candidate for uh, TIFF procedure or other interventions? So thank you for touching on that. Yeah,
2: you, could, you could have a TIF, you could have a Nissen. There's some people that believe know that, okay, maybe when you do the wrap, you can't quite see the bottom of the barretts too well because it's so tight, but um, we have ways around it. We could use little caps on the end of our scope to kind of splay it open. Um, I could even treat Barrett's esophagus with radiofrequency ablation in patients who have had a Nissen or a Tiff. You know, we can we can do it. So um, there was fear originally, but I think practically speaking, I don't see that it's a major contraindication.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that. So we're talking a lot about the TIF procedure. Um, maybe we'll just close it out by getting some of your feedback on what are you seeing um, in your patient population as far as outcomes go yeah. when the TIF procedure is performed. Yeah. So
2: when patients are t- trying to decide, okay, let's say let's let's just take the kind of the toughest situation, which is you have uh, a hiatal hernia and it needs repairing because it's wide enough, and so you're facing some kind of surgery. Okay. Now what do you do? TIF or let the surgeon just take it all the way home with the t- with a hernia repair and the NISIN? So part A is the same. It's the hernia repair. But then do we do, you know, someone like me come in and finish it with a TIF or does the surgeon just keep going? And, you know, that's a tough question. And it's a little bit based on what your goals are as a patient. You know, I, I have no problem saying if you want the, the one that has the longest term patients have had it for decades, um, it's tried and true. There's plenty of data on it. It's durable. It's strong. It's tight, has better acid control, uh, then go with the NISV or a surgical wrap, it, you know, it's a surgeon getting in there, wrapping the top of the stomach around. But there's a trade off with that. And the problem is that that's really good, it's really strong, it's really durable, but in some patients, it could be too tight. And that's, that's really the challenge. And so when you look at the data from the surgical literature, and even my partner surgeons, when they hear about you know patients that had some issue with their Nissen, it's, it's that there it may be as high as 10 to sometimes 30% rate of symptoms related to the wrap being too tight. And, and it's, almost, it's almost too good of a procedure, the, the Nissen. And those symptoms could be things like bloating. You know, if it's too tight, the gas in the stomach can't get up, so you get gas bloat. Um, if it can't go up, where does it go? It goes down, so you get flatulence. Um, some people have problems swallowing, so what we call dysphagia. Some people lose the ability to belch or vomit because it's just, it's just too tight. It's not everyone. And again, if, if a patient wants the tried and true, the quote gold standard, it's worked for many, many, many patients. Absolutely, it's still a, a great procedure, the NISC fund But if you've got pre-existing symptoms or you're really worried about those side effects, um, then that's when we kind of look to, maybe we should do part A, which is a hernia repair, but part B, go with TIFF, which is, you know, yeah, it's a newer procedure, but we've been doing it for many years now. It's already 2022. And I'm, I'm, we've had it at UCLA for almost half a decade now. Um, it's, uh, it, it works, there's good data. Um, it's uh, pretty durable. The longer we do it, the more durability data we'll get, but at least 10 year data showing that it's intact. And the, the but the key is that the side effect rate for most of those things I just mentioned, if it's 10 to 30% or higher in the surgical side, for TIF, it's less than 3%. So less than 3% rate of gas, blow, less than 3% rate of problems swallowing, problems vomiting, inability to burp, uh, burp or belch, uh, problems with flatulence. So that's where Okay, it's, it's not as tight, not as strong, not, hasn't been around as long, but that may not be the best thing for every patient. So that's where, again, kind of what I assess is what is a patient trying to get out of this? Is it really that you just want kind of to get symptom control? Um, and when you look at the efficacy or the effectiveness of the TIF, still pretty good. You know, For most, most of the things we care about, uh, relief of, of symptoms like regurgitation or acid reflux works really well for regurgitation. That, that's a slam dunk uh, you know, type of thing. Um, you know, looking seventy to eighty percent in most patients. Um, the the acid control, yeah. If we went in with a pH probe on every patient, not as high as anissin, but still pretty good. You know, with most numbers, most studies are always kind of we repeat this seventy to eighty percent range. So, the way I look at it is my next analogy: it's Goldilocks. It's not too tight, not too loose. It's kind of right in the middle. And uh, and the trade-off is, yeah, it's not it's not as tight, not as strong, but the side effect rate is so low that. You know, I, I, I don't have any patients that, after the initial recovery period, have come back to me saying that, hey, I can't, I, I don't, I've ne- I, knock on wood, I haven't had any of those types of things that I have many patients referred by surgeons saying, hey, can you try to dilate the Nissen or do something to recover from that? And, it's, and, and that's the other thing. Um, now, the other thing that's nice about TIF is that it doesn't burn bridges. So, if it's the Goldilocks procedure, it also keeps options on the table. So for example, if I've, I've had patients in their 30s that go with the combined hiatal hernia repair with TIF because both the TIF and the Nissen can come apart. And usually what comes apart is actually the hernia repair, not the wrap. But it's actually, you can convert a TIF to a Nissen. You could repeat the TIF and tighten it up again. Um, and uh, and it, it, so the other way of saying it is, it doesn't burn bridges. You still have all your options available. With both a Nissen and a TIF, there are patients, uh, a, a significant amount of patients that will need to restart an acid blocker at some point in their life. Um, it's usually at a lower dose than it was before. So anyone that tells you, oh yeah, you'll be off of the PPI forever with either the surgery or the TIF, uh, that's just not true. But um, again, it, it's, it's much harder to salvage a Nissen that's broken down or failed than it is a TIF, you know, that we can readily redo. And I've done several redo TIFs and it's faster than the first one. So it's pretty straightforward. You just kind of find the areas that have come apart and a few tags and you're good to go. So that's the way I position TIF. Goldilocks procedure doesn't burn any bridges and that's one reason that even with the surgery the hyaluronic repair some patients many patients for me uh, will will choose to go with the combined TIF option.
1: Excellent thank you for going into such detail on that too and uh, when you're talking to your patients post procedure uh, specifically with TIF, what, how are they reporting their quality of life?
2: Yeah, uh, so far so good. You know, immediately after the procedure, some pain, some nausea, um, part of the process, we give medications, get them comfortable. Um, we have a diet sheet actually, we, people can Google, it's the UCLA TIF diet sheet to show, we had an amazing dietitian that kind of put together our protocol. There's no s- kind of hard you know, if you do this differently than the next hospital, but just some guidance on what to expect with the activity, the way that we think is reasonable to do with diet changes, et cetera. Um, so it's really, you're looking kind of like a six week total, uh, slight change to your lifestyle, but really you're back up on your feet way, way sooner than that. And the recovery times are shorter than surgery. So, you know, I, I tell patients maybe take a few days off of work or do it on a Friday and maybe you know, decide on Tuesday if you want to go back um, uh, to work. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a major surgery. Even with the hernia repair, um, they're doing it laparoscopically or robotically. So, you know, very small incisions. Um, We do keep patients overnight um, just to get them some symptom control. It's kind of nice to have the IVs and stuff like that. Um, But we'll let them go home the next day. Um, And then the slow diet progression really because the tags are good. But what I'm waiting for is the body to heal and scar in the flap valve that I've created, the length and tightening. Um, And so that's why we have such a restrictive diet. Beforehand, we just want everything to seal in place and scar down. If you went too fast on a diet, not going to really hurt that much. It's really just it's not going to kind of heal as tight, and then you may not get as much durability out of it. So that's the reason we're very slow on the diet. So,
1: excellent, thank you. Um, I, I guess your uh, parting words to our audience, Dr. Thacker, if you were to give any uh, words of advice to. Folks who are on the fence or maybe a little reticent to move forward with getting scoped or getting an evaluation to treat the reflux, what would you say to those folks out there today? Yeah,
2: I think the, the first thing is you're not alone. You know, we're, this, is, it, this is such a major, major issue. You can you see how much there is online and in our clinics, you know, it's probably one of the most common reason that GIs see patients. And so um, we, we, we see a lot of this and we have a tried and true algorithm to kind of evaluate it. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is just remember that um, everyone's different. Right? This is—it's not just one condition. Okay, GERD. We treat everyone the same way. We might start it the same way, but you know, it, it really is a spectrum. There's different flavors of it, and part of our job as a physician is to work with you and explore what your symptoms are, and if needed, do additional tests. Which um, are safe, they're effective. You know, we, we, we and the data is helpful. And so to try to figure out what flavor of reflux do you have, and then after that, it's to you know lay out those those options. And again, lifestyle, diet, medications. For many many people, those are fine. You don't have to necessarily do more. Even if you have a hiatal hernia, if you take a PPI, your symptoms are controlled. You have none of the complications of GERD. That's okay. You could live with that. Many so many people have hiatal hernia, and that's not a problem unless it becomes a problem. And then you know, maybe you don't want to take PPIs or you're getting symptom breakthrough, whatever it might be. Then we kind of go to these other options, which again, more and more data on, on TIFF. It's, it, it's it, and then you've got the tried and true. You know, we've got lots of things and the nice thing about it, they're safe and for the most part, you know, highly effective for, for properly selected patients. So if you're on the fence, you know, we're, we're here to help and offer options. That's really the message, I think.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Wendy, I'll uh, ask you, if, are there any last-minute questions we can squeeze in? or
3: You know, we, we have um, just a, a couple of comments that are thanking Dr. Thacker for his time. One, asking if the TIF surgery is worldwide. We are in um, various markets. Um, I would recommend maybe visiting GERDhelp.com or EndogastricSolutions.com for more information on our international markets. Um, and that really is is it. I think everybody was was very appreciative of the explanation on uh, hernia repair, as well as, well as TIFF, as well as Baird's esophagus. So thanks again for covering those in such detail.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We covered a lot in a pretty short amount of time, but uh, it, it's a big topic, so.
1: <laughs> it definitely is, and thank you. Thank you everyone for being here tonight. Thank you for your questions. Um, We wish you all good health. If you are looking for a physician outside of where Dr. Thacker is located, as Wendy said, we have GERDhelp.com. Visit our Physician Finder there in the upper right-hand corner. We also have a mobile app that is uh, free and available for you to download. You can do that through the App Store. Um, Your App Store, that's uh, iOS or Android. So uh, definitely check that out. It's loaded with information, videos, articles highly educational for uh, anyone suffering uh, from GERD. So um, again, thank you for your questions. Wendy, thank you for being here and helping. And Dr. Thacker, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us tonight.
2: Absolutely.
1: We, We truly appreciate it. And folks, we're here every Tuesday night. So we hope you tune in on an upcoming Tuesday and hope everyone has a wonderful evening.
0: If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tiff Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD help. Live well, GERD free.